Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Kubrick series Uncut. In this episode, we speak with Paul Whittington, the author of The Shining Explored. Well, I've always been, you know, interested in Kubrick and who isn't really, so who's uh, you know, into film and stuff like that. So I, uh, when it came to The Shining, though, I didn't see, I was only about maybe six years old when that film came out, so um, I was pretty, pretty young, so didn't really see that until later on, until like around late 80s and stuff you know it's it's one of those films that where you you know you once you first see it you it just sort of like totally you know just captivates you and and then you want to see it again and again and then the more times you watch it you just become interested and i think it was through the shining that i got ultimately interested in in kubrick and then i started you know seeing his other films i'd seen a couple before that clockwork orange of course which is in my opinion my all-time favorite uh, kubrick film well, and, and it's interesting because the past few years, uh, I mean, as you certainly know, your book is about this, and as I found out, there, there's been this an increasing scholarship about The Shining in particular, mm-hmm. um, where people are n- noticing these intricacies that are kind of submerged in the film. Uh, when did it first occur to you that there was kind of more than meets the eye in that movie? Yeah, the first time you watch it, um, you, you just, you're like, What's going on in this movie? <laughs> and you kind of get it, but you kind you know that there's there's something more going on than than what you saw. And of course, that's what generates the interest to want make you want to watch it again and again. Then after you've seen it about two or three times, you just you know you you start picking up on new little things, and it's it's like a puzzle. It's just like a you know of all Kubrick movies, this The Shining is probably the most heavily encrypted and symbolic, you know, in terms of the narrative and everything that's going on inside of it. All the symbols mm-hmm. that are just elegantly placed throughout the movie and as you start picking up on them and of course now we have the internet so um a couple of years ago was when i really started to uh dissect it and get into it and and just you know want to okay i want to see if i can solve this movie and so i just watched it over and over you know uh every now and then and then you'd watch certain scenes over and over again kind of going through them and stuff and then you got the internet you can go online and see what other people are saying about it and by just you know, taking little bits and pieces and uh, trial and error, you know, seeing what works and what doesn't, you can kind of eventually form together, you know, what you believe is actually going on in the movie. Yeah. You know, and I always, I always thought it was so fitting that the movie ends in a maze. I mean, that mm-hmm. that tells you all you need to know right there, that there's there's so much to kind of weave in and out of in this movie, so, so many kind of hidden themes. and uh, But your book, you actually go pretty much scene by scene, uh, in the movie, more more or less. Yeah, when I so when I first started to write it, I was trying to decide on which direction I should take it. Should I break it down into themes? Like you've got the the twins, and then you've got the you know Jack's you know mental conditions, and and then all these different elements that go into the film. And I thought, well, maybe I would do it like that. But then I realized it's probably better to do it scene by scene. That way, it's the information is being presented to you the way it's presented in the film. And then you can kind of also use the book as sort of a reference so that you could watch it 
um, you could read a scene and then watch that scene in the, in, in the film, or if you, you know, then you could sort of jump back and forth between watching the film and reading the book. So, which you kind of really need to do. You kind of need to sort of, you know, read the book and watch the film at the same time to, to get, you know, everything that's kind of going on. And I thought I'd do an introduction at the beginning, so that would basically explain what I perceived the film to be about, and then the scene by scene analysis would be the, the evidence of that. Mm-hmm. You know, we've in all the Kubrick programming that we've done, we spent an hour of uh, just an hour of like the two and a half hours of our Shining show exploring the different theories related to it. And mm-hmm. I got to tell you, we've never received so much hate mail. <laughs> oh, really? From that section, from people that were just resentful that somehow we were. We were kind of overanalyzing it and stuff like that, or smearing the movie that they love so much. And Uh, my point of view was always: the more you find in a movie, uh, the the more you appreciate it. The more it comes to life and evolves for you. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It. uh, Well, for me, I find that that's interesting that you mention that because, for me, it's when when it comes to The Shining, the, the first couple of times you watch it, it's very ambiguous, it's very eerie, and it's very uncanny. It's like one of the most uncanny films, you know, not the most uncanny Kubrick, but one of the most ambiguous and uncanny films, you know, ever made. And the more you realize what's actually going on in the film, um, the, the less of the, the less ambiguous it is, and it no longer becomes uncanny. And you, you're not actually watching a, for me anyway, I'm no longer watching a, a horror movie when I watch The Shining. It's a, it's a family drama essentially. Mm-hmm. Because you yeah, know I, that there's no ghosts at the hotel, and you know that you know this isn't happening and that's not happening, which is what you're led to believe, and so it's it's no longer it's a, you're you're literally watching a different movie, <laughs> which is kind of neat, you know. But I miss I, that. I, I miss the uh, eeriness of it, you know. I I agree with you completely, but uh, but also I mean the themes that he's working with uh, mm-hmm. that you express in your book. Uh, I mean they're. They're the, they kind of reflect the most horrific aspects of human nature, uh, yeah. and so I, I think that just the themes alone that he's dealing with reinforce the horror of the movie uh, in a very special way. Um, but definitely, you know, definitely on a, on a human on a human level, yes, definitely. Yes, yeah. But here's the rather than question. a rather than a typical uh, ghost story or um, you know like a typical horror movie, it's yeah, it's more of the yeah. horrors of of real life rather than the typical cliched horrors you'd see in a horror film exactly but that's a the true wave of horror wave of terror that he was referring to in his in his ad campaign essentially that's right that's right it, but here's the main question how do and I'm sure the the people that read your book that are skeptics uh mm-hmm. might ask this first of all how okay. how do you know that all of these theories aren't a bunch of hooey right right so it depends on which theory you're you're uh, referring to at the time. So, because <laughs> uh, there's you oh you mean like the theories that I express in the book or the theories that are out there? It, it, anything that kind of tries to express something that's not on the surface. Uh, you just got to dig. You know, you dig into it and you look at all the subtleties that are in the film. So, and like if we're talking about say Jack's, um, one of the biggest things that I noticed in the film was this whole notion that Jack's going crazy. Like just you know bonkers insane, and when we look at that right it's that's not actually what's really going on in the film. If you kind of examine his you know the the key to understanding jack's you know mental state really lies in in the in the behaviors of the character, and there's essentially three 
primary behaviors that he exhibits exhibits in the in the film. So there's like the kind and caring, warm uh, Jack, the happy Jack. There's the troubled and uh, hot-tempered Jack, and then there's a, at the at the end there's the over-the-top Jack. So when when we look at like um, the kind and caring Jack, where you know there's it's hard to you know see Jack Torrance as a kind person, but there are certain scenes in the film where he does exhibit you know uh, compassion, and so of course we, we can rule that out as insanity. And then when you look at the hot tempered, you know, where he, his outbursts, where he, where he explodes at Wendy in the Colorado Lounge and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Those scenes aren't really insanity. That's just when you understand what the nature of the character, how he's struggling to, to get on in life and trying to build a career for himself. And he, basically his goal is to reach elitism, you know, the, the top of society. That's his primary goal, and that's just not happening for him. So he's a very angry and bitter person. And, of course, he feels as though his wife and kid are dragging him down. So he's very resentful against them. And there's you know, tons of evidence in the film that, that supports all this. So those scenes where he explodes at Wendy, they're actually, that's not insanity. That's just, that's normal. That's, that's logic. That's reasonable. That's how a person in his situation would act. In fact, the one scene where, I believe the one scene where Jack actually um, explodes at Wendy when she comes in and interrupts him, that was a scene that I think Jack Nicholson actually wrote himself. He came yeah, up with cause, that. Yeah, because he'd been in that position before with with exactly. a mate of his when he was writing, yeah. Right, um, right. So, and of course, you know, in real life, he's not actually crazy. So, you know, that's something that a human would normally do. And of course, you got the third level, which is the over-the-top Jack at the very end. Now, the, the, the over-the-top moments where everyone says, I don't like his performance, it's too, you know, hammy or over-the-top, those scenes are actually at the end of the film. When he approaches Wendy in the Colorado Lounge, or I'm sorry, in the, in the um, where she reads the... Um, the, uh, the pages that say all work and no right. make Jack all boy. From that scene forward, there's about four scenes where Jack is his performance is, is hammy or over the top, and it's during those moments. If you look at them, it, we, we I think we can all agree that that doesn't truly express you know insanity. It's more of a it's 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 very it's more of a silly performance rather than a than a um, a genuine true interpretation of of insanity. And so, and it's it's hard to believe that Stanley Kubrick would, you know, given how how well read he was and how well versed he would have been in psychology, that he would have be able to get that wrong, you know. So what that tells me, anyway, is that that's not what he's portraying in these scenes. And if you look closely, more more accurately, the theme of alcoholism that plays in, in that movie, that that's what's going on. He's actually not portraying someone who's insane during those last few scenes in the movie. He's portraying someone who's intoxicated, symbolically. Mm. Mm. Well, it's interesting to talk about the psychology of it because uh, you discuss Freud uh, in terms of the, 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 the teachings of Freud or the observations of Freud kind of structuring those, that character. And right. Could you give me like a brief rundown of what exactly the tenets of that uh, of Freud's theories are that that surround The Shining for you? So basically, the first, the, the primary one would be um, uh, Freud's primary um, makeup of the person of the human personality, the id, the ego, and the superego. And this is portrayed in the film. Like basically, this movie is is so much got it's got so much Freud in it, and it all links back to that id, ego, and superego. And we're seeing a battle between 
the id and the superego throughout the movie. And mm. so that, that element lies in there throughout the entire film. And basically, as the, the, the further the film goes on, as the, the more you get into it, the, the weaker Jack's superego becomes. And so the more his id is, is able to take over and his, his basic primal urges and desires, you know, that he's been inhibiting, you know, in society. Now that they're isolated from society, they're isolated away from any form of, um, you know, moral, like, uh, you know, any kind of law enforcement that can enforce moral code. And he, he becomes the dominant force in that three-person society that exists in at the the Colorado Lounge, or I mean the Overlook Hotel, and that's what's actually happening in the film. He's he's basically becoming more primal. Mm. And so you don't you don't see <clears throat> excuse me any uh, you don't see it as a as a kind of a battle between the psychological and the supernatural. You, you no. don't necessarily see a supernatural element expressed in the movie, or I really wanted there to be one, and I. You know, I, I looked and I tried to explain the supernatural uh, as much as I could when I was first kind of getting my my analysis together. And the more I looked into it, the more I began to realize that this element just doesn't exist in the movie, that the Overlook Hotel, unlike Stephen King's novel, is not haunted. It's just, it's just an ordinary hotel. Mm. And that basically links back to another Freudian concept of the uncanny, basically, is the reason why we're, we're made to believe the hotel is through several things that he puts in the movie to make us assume that the that the uh, hotel is haunted when in fact it's it's actually just an, another hotel. And so what about I mean that that's that that is a very valid argument and you know you 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 can read the movie in that for, with that perspective but for most people the whole wrench in that theory is the door opening from the outside the, uh, the yes, storage door. Yes. That's that was the one scene I think that was the the, the last scene that it took me to figure out was that scene. That and the also the um, the all work and no play pages, because it's 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 the, those two scenes, the all work and no play makes Jack a doll boy. When Wendy's flipping through those pages, and the scene where where um, Jack is released, those two scenes were the most difficult to explain. And the reason why is because there's those two elements that I you know explain that the, the place is haunted and that. Jack's not going insane. Well, there's a scene in the movie for each of one of those that basically confirms that Jack is going insane, which would be the all work and no play pages. Because how can you know how can anyone sit there day after day writing nothing but but those pages, right, and not be insane? That that seals the deal for the insanity thing. And then there's also, as you mentioned, the uh, the opening of the door by yeah. Grady, because th- th- nothing else can explain that. I mean, how did he get out? There's only three of them in the hotel. And so the, the place must be haunted. And this was what, for me, was the hardest part to get around the whole ghost thing until I said, the only way I can con- confirm, I can, you know, confirm that there's no actual ghost is to, is to get around this scene. And eventually I realized, well, it, it, it was Danny that opened the door. Because mm. there's only two of them there, Wendy and Danny, that could possibly open the door. And, of course, Wendy wouldn't have done it because she was, you know, terrified of Jack. And so, but because uh, Danny is... During that moment in the in the film, um, the, the scene before where Danny is, it looks like he's become possessed by the ghosts, and he says, right. you know, Danny's not here, Mrs. Torrance. Danny's gone away. He's actually hiding in, inside of himself. He's 
he has got so much fear, and this is another uh, Freudian defense mechanism kind of element, uh, you know, dissociation. So he is, you know, in that state from shock and terror of mm. the um, images that he's seeing via the shine, and also because of the abuse that Danny, that uh, Jack inflicted upon him. So now he has become disassociated, you know, in order to hide from his fears. So now, and he's put Tony, his imaginary friend, into the foreground of his personality. So it's Tony has the courage to go down and unlock the door mm. mm-hmm. and then come back up. And that's why the scene after, so that we, we hear the door unlock, and then we see um, Halloran, I think it is, going through the, uh, on his way to getting into the, uh, getting through the snow there. And then we cut to Danny walking um, into the, um, into the bedroom there, picking up the knife. And the reason why he's doing that is because he's just come back from unlocking the door and he's waiting for, for Jack, you know, to come so he can try and kill him. Because mm-hmm. he knows that that's where Jack's going to go because he saw the, the, the image of the red rum door in his, in his um, mind. The shine showed him that, right? The moment, the exact moment when uh, Jack was going to attempt to kill them. So now he's going to try and kill his father before his father can kill them. That's why he lets him out of the, out of the, out of the storeroom. Well, let's talk about Jack and Danny and that relationship for a bit. Um, okay. And and you cover this this particular scene in your book, and it might be a odd way to introduce the relationship between Jack and Danny. But uh, the the scene near the beginning, closing day, when he's sitting in the lobby and he just happens to be reading a Playgirl, uh, very, very nonchalantly. Um, and you know, I was—I always wondered, you know, what does that, what would that mean? And then I saw the contents of that particular issue, and I believe there's an article on pedophilia in that issue. Is um, there really? I, that's interesting. Yeah, because uh, I saw the table of contents, and so. Okay. What kind? What is going on with that relationship between father and son? I don't see any. I've heard that too. Like. Um, that whole idea that is there something sexual going on and all that I just don't see it in the film it, it could be there but I just have not seen it at all so there's, I just really haven't seen any evidence of it and so I'm just I don't know I, just, I don't think it really has much to do there, there are Freudian you know concepts that could deal around that idea and it could be there and then there's also the, the, the you know the castration complex uh-huh. which kind of links you know on those same kind of lines and that, I believe, is also is for sure in the movie. During, of course, the, the multiple you know phallic symbols you see in, in the carpet uh, pattern of the room two three seven. So that kind of, which is of course, is a rivalry thing against uh, father and son. So I believe that element is definitely in the movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, what is what is the um I'm sure you've read all the different theories involved in The Shining, uh, but the craziest has to be the the Jay Widener. Uh. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, the Apollo uh, Eleven thing. I there's there's nothing in the in the film to do with that whatsoever, yeah. except for but, just the fact that Danny's wearing the, the the sweater during that one scene, the Apollo Eleven sweater. That's the only real. Uh, insertion of it in the movie, and that could just be by coincidence. But see, I was—I don't know exactly what year that whole theory came about. That you know, that the possibility that Kubrick had faked the moon landings and all that by filming the footage, mm-hmm. 
And if that had have occurred before the movie, then he likely just put that in there as an inside joke, just having him wear the sweater, you know. It's so interesting to me, though. Real. I mean, uh, th- that's that's a big reason why we got hate mail. But uh, okay. with that particular <laughs> interview, it's wider. But this is what's so fascinating to me about The Shining and the scholarship on The Shining, and and what I think reinforces what I love about movies, like people that people that live inside movies and get lost in there, because. Obviously, it's a cuckoo theory. I mean, Kubrick faked the moon landings, and he's expressing it in these, this film. But it, it it so expresses what this one person sees in the movie, and he's able to justify it. And, and, and if you kind of if you if you experience it through his eyes and his personal experience, you think, okay, well, he's able to justify it. I mean, those all of those actions are taking place on the screen. But but it shows you how how people are so individual and in how they watch movies and interpret them. Yes, uh, yes. And I think that reinforces the power of movies. I don't know why people are so well, frightened of that. Exactly. Yeah. And I like the, the thing I like about The Shining the most is the fact that you can watch it any way you want. If you want to see it as a as a ghost story, well, it's fashioned in that manner, and you you can mm-hmm. do it. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. Or if you believe Jack is going crazy, or if you you know believe there's actual as, as I say in my book, you know, there's actual, genuine, like normal psycholo- you know, psychological elements that are that are logical and reasonable, and and make sense. It's not just dismissed as in, as insanity, as you know. So there's you can look at it either way, and mm-hmm. that's one of the, the beautiful things about a film that's so ambiguous is it is open to interpretation. Definitely, I believe yeah. there is one solid explanation for everything going on that the, the director intended. And that was my goal in the movie was to discover that. But as you say, you can view the film any way you like. The the, the subject of duality in the film. I mean, it, uh, Kubrick kind of frequently used the motifs of doubles and that kind of thing, and and it's particularly explicit in The Shining. Uh, what what does that? say what place does that have in the movie so you mean like um not so much the duality man but the the instances of doubles like the twins and then the, the double lamps and all that kind of stuff yeah exactly yeah okay yeah those are i of course that would go back to the uncanny as well because mm. basically freud one of the things that freud mentions in his essay the uncanny is that things that are, are that are doubles like twins and stuff to to the to people can be perceived as being uncanny so that's likely what he's doing is inserting doubles like the twin elevators and the you know the twin this and twin that throughout the film is just to help generate that or help reinforce that element of the uncanny well and there's uh, something else just popped to mind because we're talking about this the supernatural element of it and it's interesting how anytime any he he encounters anything that's that looks supernatural whether it be yeah. The old woman in 237, or right. uh, Grady, or Lloyd behind the bar. Right. He's actually always standing or sitting in front of a mirror. Yep. Um, so does that that mean something special to you too? The mirror element, yeah. That well, the mirror element basically links to the the mirror in in the um, the bathroom, room 237, where he he looks in and sees the old woman. Mm-hmm. the uh, ugly, rotting corpse version of the woman. Because what's actually happening in that scene is basically Dan, we're not actually seeing Jack go in room 237 during that scene. 
in, in like um, the chronological order of the film. So we we see Jack and in the gold room, and Wendy runs in and she says to him, you know, there's a crazy woman in one of the rooms, and she tried to strangle Danny, and he says, which room was it? And then we cut to Halloran just before Jack goes into the room, so we assume Jack's now going to investigate the crazy woman. But if you watch that scene closely, you can see that Danny's making a link to Halloran, and he's actually showing Halloran what happened to him earlier that day inside room 237. And that's what that whole room 237 with the woman is all about. That's We're seeing that basically through the eyes of Halloran, or perhaps Danny, you know, because in their, in their communication there. So all the events that take place with Jack going in and seeing the old woman is relevant to when Danny went inside room 237 a couple of scenes earlier, and then it fades out as he's walking towards the mirror. Because the mirror, as you mentioned earlier, what the mirror represents is the dark side of Jack. That's, that's Jack's id, essentially. And so this is why he sees the ugly woman when he looks into the mirror is because he's looking, um, he's, he's seeing himself strangling Danny. And so he's seeing uh, Danny's ugliness draped all over, all over him. So that, mm. that solidifies the idea that the mirrors represent Jack's id. Because it's through the mirror that he sees himself attacking Danny. Because you know, he he's, a, he's a moral and ethical person. But because of all the things that are going on in his life that have led him to become more, you know, more of an, an angry, bitter person and, and hate, with, full of hatred and contempt you know, towards his family, he's doing things that he knows are wrong. And when he sees them happening, it's disturbing to him. And so that's what that whole mirror is. So now whenever we see mirrors in the film, that's what they're representing. They're representing the dark side of Jack. This is why when Danny walks into room 237, he walks towards the mirror because he's walking, you know, he's walking towards, you know, getting injured, essentially. So he's walking towards Jack's dark side. And, of course, when Jack is walking down the hallway towards the uh, gold room and he walks past the four mirrors and he, yeah. he lashes out in anger, right, yeah. during yeah. each mirror, that's because his dark side is being reflected back at him. And he's angry, and he's out. He's you know lashing out in uh, anger, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. It's interesting. It, though, there's that... a chronological kind of mix-up there because certain scenes happen before others it, during that sequence. So when we see Jack walking um, towards you know past the mirrors, there the four mirrors. Um, the scene before that is his nightmare, and and then we see um, Danny come in. Danny with getting. Torn, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and basically, we're, that happens. Jack strangling Danny happens off camera, and then we see it a, a few scenes later. So it's very confusing. The chronological order there kind of mixes things up. But so basically, after Danny um, is injured and Jack is disturbed by it, that instantly goes into repression in his mind, and he blanks mm. it out. And this is why he has no memory of it when Danny walks into the room, and he's all confused. That confusion on his face is genuine. That's not insanity. <laughs> That's just. Jack tries struggling to find out what's going on. It's it's a natural occurrence, repression, right? We, well, we all yeah. we've all done it in our lives. We've all had moments where we've that we've repressed and we can't remember because they're too disturbing to us. And this Jack is exhibiting one, and that is exactly why he has his nightmare. Is because those mind those those negative thoughts are in his in his mind, and they're coming out from the unconscious during his dream. And that's exactly why he has a dream about killing, you know, because killing Wendy and Danny is because. Those things are on his mind. Well, we were uh, we were fortunate enough to to track down the the woman in the bathtub, the younger version of her, uh, Leah Beldum, and we interviewed her for the series. Yes, I I, I um, listened to that. That was a that was a 
pretty cool interview. But 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 given your reading of that scene, what's the significance of the younger, pr- prettier woman turning into the deteriorating hag? So there's the two versions. Yeah, there's the young, the beautiful version, which represents Danny before um, Jack has injured him. And okay. then there's the old and ugly one, which represents uh, Jack after he's injured Danny. Okay. Essentially. And there's this really weird cut in that scene, and it's after it's right after he recoils away in horror, and the old woman's kind of creeping up towards him, and yep. then it cuts back to her rising from the bathtub. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, that always struck me as very puzzling. That that cut. Yeah, the the cut or the the fact that she's rising out of the tub. Well, the, well, yeah, the the kind of the nonlinear. Uh, cut. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think it's all just, it's basically just symbolism. So you've got Jack walking back away from, from the, the old hag, and that represents his shock and horror from just strangling Danny. And then we cut to the old hag, you know, rising out of the tub, which basically symbolizes Jack's um, rise in, um, you know, his, in his um, ability to, you know, to, to do harm and stuff like that. His dark side is rising, essentially. And this is why he runs out and he locks the door, because he's locking, he's locking his, his dark side. In, mm. into, in room 237, after he, he steps out of the room. Given what, um, I mean, do you, given your reading of this film, do you view the ending uh, in any way kind of in a positive light? Or do you think it's uh, another example of kind of Kubrick it's, nihilism? Right, right. No, yeah, it is definitely a, not a, not a, you know, a happy ending, that's for sure. So it's, I think it's just a, a raw, real, you know, it's Kubrick's outlook. It's his, it's his understanding of the duality of man, essentially, that he's, he's showing us. And so there is really no happy ending. There's just, you know, in life, there's no right or wrong or good or bad, happy and sad. There just is what there is. And but the fa- I think the Kubrick gets- understood that in, that, in the- his movie, so he didn't want to give his movies essentially a, a happy ending or, a, a you know, a dark ending. There's just the ending that, that there is. But the family does get away. And and it almost seems like I mean if if Danny retraces his father's footsteps mm-hmm. uh it it's almost an, a symbolism of perhaps he's he's escaped the the demons that will that have plagued his father. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely, yeah. That's that's definitely one way to look at it for sure. Uh, but what, what does it have? You, I know I know that you know about the the ending that they cut out that Kubrick decided to cut out. Right, uh, right, right. Knowing the contents of that ending, uh, does that illuminate anything uh, more for you? Actually, I just read it. Um, I guess the the people over at uh, what's that site called? Uh, the Overlook uh, uh, blog. Overlook yeah. Hotel. Yeah, they they just posted that ending. So, and I was I was reading it just a couple of weeks ago. And it's, it is a strange ending. It does not seem to match the film at all. Um, it is really weird. Yeah, <laughs> I had heard about it before, and and people have, have described it online what that ending is about, and it pretty much matches up with what you see in the in the, in the um, what you read in the, in the script there. But yeah, I can kind of see why they they left it out. The whole explanation that you know they, that Wendy didn't see anything, and that they can't explain it, and Jack's gone and stuff, and. It does seem too on the nose. Uh, yeah. 
you know, and I think that that's that's probably the main reason why he cut it out. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm more interested in why he, why he wanted it in the first place, and and then yeah, yeah. And then he suddenly at the last minute he 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 pulled the plug, and he it, it was only been screened for a couple of days with that that ending in, and then he suddenly at the last minute realized he he obviously realized I made a big mistake with this ending, and I've got to get rid of it. The same as what he would have done with his other footage and just wanting to destroy it and not let anyone see it. It's interesting because I was uh, I forget who we were talking to, but. We're talking to somebody about the, the filming of those of that last scene in the hospital, okay. and they said they spent he spent an enormous amount of time when Ullman throws the tennis ball to Danny in the hospital. Okay. Kubrick Very spent a lot of yeah. Kubrick spent a lot of time making sure the ball bounced three times before it got to Danny. Oh really. And you know, you hear stuff like this, and you're like, it's it's so frustrating. You're like, what yeah, you're the like, hell? what does it mean? What does it mean? Yeah, <laughs> perhaps the three bounces uh, top of my head um, represent the three, Danny Halloran and uh, Wendy, maybe, or yeah, yeah, that is yeah. interesting. But Absolutely. you know, there's something there because there's so many little subtleties, like the goofy doll hanging in, uh, you know, in Danny's room, and uh, yeah, the dolly wog yeah. laying on the floor, and the, there's just all kinds of little little things. Um, I was listening to one of your interviews a few about a month or so ago, and it was one I hadn't heard until just then. And there was somebody had mentioned that they had noticed a little um, um, sign on one of the uh, one of the bulletin boards that said "ice cream." And yeah. I had, I didn't know about this before. I hadn't picked up on that. And that's interesting because the whole notion behind the uncanny in the film, I believe anyway, comes which comes from Freud's essay. Um, basically has to do with the um, the story of the Sandman by E.T. Hoffman. And essentially what Freud analyzes as being the uncanny in that story is, is being robbed of one's eyes. Mm. Right? And so, it, it, which yeah. essentially is the fear of losing your eyes, which is what ice cream symbolizes. So, I mean, is there a link? Is that a coincidence? I mean, I, you know, <laughs> as you say, it's yeah, very... Yeah, and, and, and he, he even said prior to that observation that, you know, the movie very much is about uh, uh, it's about eyes and seeing and I mean what is The Shining except you know uh, yeah, ha yeah. having visions yeah and also he, that's Jeffrey Cox and also he had a he had an observation about just the the little idiosyncrasies in the movie like the like dopey all of a sudden disappearing from Danny's bedroom mm -hmm. door. I read about that. The book, yeah. You know, and and you look at this, and this is what's amazing about looking at The Shining in closer examination. I mean, it might feel a little off the first time you watch it, but you enjoy it as a straightforward horror film, I, I suppose. Yeah. But then you some some things don't sit right with you, and you realize that there's kind of some continuity errors going on there. And how can there be such continuity errors if if Kubrick was such a meticulous guy? Exactly. Uh, and so you have to kind of suggest meaning in those errors. Uh, Every person that's ever worked with him, they've all said the same thing, and that he he was, you know, the biggest, you know, the the, the most perfection, the biggest perfectionist that they had ever worked with. Yeah. So 
how could you exactly how can he get these things wrong? So, and then, so basically, yeah, my understanding is that everything that happens in the film was was intentional, or at least most most of the stuff anyway. Of mm-hmm. course, there's a couple of things like the the shadow of the helicopter, which was a you know a mistake on the full screen version, and little things like that. Right. But for the most part, I would say 99% of everything in in the in his movies, especially The Shining, is intentional. So they become that... clues. Right. Yes. Yes. And I know that you say that Clockwork is your favorite, but um, yeah. do, you, what other, do you see any other Kubrick film that comes close to this level of, of kind of mystery that, that The Shining <laughs> represents? Uh, no, not in terms of um, the narrative, like um, encoding things into the narrative. Not yeah. Much. Like, again, if we go back to Clockwork Orange, that film is... It, it does have little symbolisms here. Like, it's got the... Um, you know, here and there's like little things that might symbolize something. I haven't actually analyzed that film, but basically, for the for the most part, the the story is is pretty straightforward. Yeah. There's not nothing hidden or encrypted in it. It's more of a his experimentation. I believe his strongest experimentation in that film was was with the uncanny, making hmm. the film very bizarre, and you know, in that sort of way. And but when you and even what if we look back even further to. 2001 Space Odyssey, then there is definitely some symbolism going on in there, for sure. At the level of The Shining? No, I don't think so. I think The Shining is the most... is basically the biggest puzzle of all of his movies. The Shining is the biggest puzzle. And then next to that would would be 2001 Space Odyssey after that. And there's a whole kind of scholarship popping up about Eyes Wide Shut now, too. Mm. Uh, People see a lot of mystery in that film now. I, I wouldn't be surprised. I've only seen that film about three times. And um, it's my least favorite of his films, but I know once I get into it, I'm going to really, you know, once I start analyzing it, I haven't had a chance to do that yet. But it is a very ambiguous, it's very uncanny, uh-huh. very ambiguous for sure. And there is a lot of Freud going on in that film. It's just a is matter there, of, yeah. Is there any other filmmaker that, that comes close to the kind of, to, to reaping, you know, I, when I think of Kubrick, I think, and you expressed it early on in our conversation. You can constantly go back to Kubrick and be rewarded in different ways. Is there any other filmmaker that rewards a viewer like like Kubrick? To to Kubrick's level, um, well, for me anyway, no. He, he represents yeah. the, the, the you know the the pinnacle of all that. There are other filmmakers that I love, like David Lynch. Um, he he's his films can be very rewarding in, in certain ways, but just not at the same. See the difference between um, somebody like Link or um, Lynch and, uh, and Kubrick is Lynch won't he won't he'll his films are they they just don't make sense when you first watch them and you know they don't and that you know you have to go back in Kubrick's more at better at, at masking them and making them appear as though they make sense mm. and he kind of tries to hide it and then it's just amb- ambiguity but really when you go in and you you learn what's going on in the films you realize that that ambiguity actually makes sense. But there's a lot of, you know, there is sense to everything going on. And that, for me, is what I appreciate the most, is that it's not doing it for the sake of being ambiguous, but there is actual meaning and reason reason in it. You just have to be able to, yeah. to go in and figure it out. Yeah, I do think that, that uh, all of Kubrick's choices kind of reinforce his theme. And whereas, uh, so I, I, I do see Lynch, as, uh, or the, Kubrick is more of an analytical person. Yes. And Lynch very, more very kind of... Lynch more kind of instinctual. 
I mean, if it if it flows and it feels right, he'll go in that direction wherever. It's I think Lynch, uh, yeah, Lynch for me, he's more interested in the world of the dream. Yeah, trying to put that on film. Uh, Kubrick yeah. does this too, and he does it very very well in a certain scenes. But that's not his only or his first focus, I don't think. But with Lynch, yes, he is very trying to just make his movies feel like they're they're like a dream. 